My name's Sam Towns. I'm Alex Norton. And I'm Jaden Samiski. That's right. We've got another awesome guest for you this week. But uh, before we get to him, let's take a moment to thank our sponsor. This week's Forgecast is coming at you thanks to the radical Robert Weber Abrasives. So after the show, be sure to give webbers.net.au a visit to stock up on all the goodies you need for your knife-making shenanigans. And of course, the good-looking fellows at Nordic Edge, suppliers of all things knife-making. All the goodies you need on your knife-making adventures can be found at their easy-to-use website, nordicedge.com.au. Yes, well, thank you very much for joining us. The Slacksmith Abides. It's me. Thanks for having me on, guys. <laughs> <laughs> well, before we get to you, uh, what have you been up to this week, Sam? Me? Um, I've been making hammers. Uh, <laughs> a lot of hammers. Yeah, did a run of six hammers. It's been, um, you know, they've been kind of taking a lot more time than they usually would, but I finally got the handles on them last night, so um, they're all ready to go. I'll be putting them up actually for sale this weekend well no today (laughs) (laughs) i am still waking up for those people who are listening (laughs) we've been doing this early in the morning um but uh other than that i've also been uh making a bunch of gravers to do some more work on the dragon hammer and the uh inlaid viking cross beam that i'm working on as well because someone callously took all of your gravers from you yeah that's it (laughs) Um, I did get a chance to go up to and hang out with, uh, Laughing Fish Forge to Zach. Um, we spent uh, a day in the forge messing around. Um, he bought a hammer off me, so I I went up there and delivered it to him and decided to hang out while we were doing it. It's always nice to hang out with other blacksmiths for a while, you know, you get a chance to, you know, share ideas and, and just, you know, like hang out with people who know what you do. Um... But yeah, other than that, it's, it's, it's pretty pretty slow. Um, I've got a lot planned, but nothing really that I can do. I uh, obviously started the Townsbury build-off. It's now running, and I've already had a lot of people messaging me with uh, entry ideas, and a couple of people have already got their blades like forged, ground, and heat-treated, ready to go with the guards. So it's, uh, it's, it's really looking good, and I'm really looking forward to seeing what people come up with. Obviously, it runs for two months, so there's plenty of time for people to join. Um, so, yeah, really looking forward to uh, seeing where that goes. Um, my song of the week this week um, is actually a musical number again. Mm. Um, <laughs> it's been a while. Um, but uh, I got the chance to watch um, Tick, Tick, Boom um andrew garfield's um you know entry to tick tick boom and one of my favorite songs from that uh whole musical is uh louder than words right um it's a fantastic song it's got a really good message as well um and so i figured why not add it to the playlist just get that eclecticism a little bit more you know in depth (laughs) yeah but what have you been up to this week alex I've been rediscovering the joys of hay fever as spring approaches um, <laughs> in full force. So um, 
other than that, I finally released my knife photography course, which has been going well, and hopefully will up the level of knife photography that we see in in uh, social media, which I'm looking forward to. Always um, well needed. Yeah, yeah, because a lot of people make really nice knives and then just cannot depict them, and you've got yeah. to try and like only somebody who is in the biz knows the work that's gone into it because they can see it clearly uh, or can't see it clearly. So hopefully that will uh, inspire a few people to take things to the next level. Uh, and I also started a new sort of crazy folder that's going to be, um, it's, it's very steampunk. Um, and Dude, that it, thing is so cool. It's Yeah, I thought I was onto something really cool. And then uh, my mate Broden pointed out that uh, Van Barnett does similar oh, sort yeah. of things. And I hadn't been following him, so now I followed him, and I feel like mm, I was on something cool. And then, <laughs> but looking at Van's work, it's very it's, it is different to his. And um, I'm going like full steampunk with this one. Like cool. I just ordered, no joke, two kilograms of watch parts Damn. Um, off online to go through and assemble the handle that this thing's going to have. It's going to be like full blown. Uh, like out there steampunk <laughs> i'm oh, excited I can't wait to, for that excited to see it watch uh, watch it uh, evolve grinding the bevels was uh trickier than expected because like my entire knife making career i've had a handle or a tang or something to hold on to while i'm grinding the bevels of a knife but the bevels on this one because it's a suspended blade there's no plunge lines there's no tang there's nothing um so mm-hmm. i had to grind one half and then Hold, you know, hold the other half and then grind the other <laughs> half and then blend them together um, all the way up through the grits and it's proven tricky but uh, I, I managed to get it there uh, and hand sanding will be just as difficult because to avoid J-hooks I've got to have it suspended from underneath so I'm going to have to like hot glue it to my platen uh, on one side so that I can <laughs> sand the entire top but uh, you know th- this is part of knife making we, we face challenges and we overcome them so yeah um, my uh, song of the week, just to add to the eclecticism even more, is um, some K-pop. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've recently discovered the group uh, Blackpink, and their song Pink Venom is really, really cool. So I don't know much about Blackpink. I just heard the song, and um, I like their sound. It's it's kind of... A, they sort of mix multiple genres into one song. It, like, fades from one genre to another throughout the song which is kind of off-putting but uh at the same time it's really well done so that's that's my song for this week but uh how about you Jaden? what have you been up to the last week it's been a hectic week over here as well just prepping for uh blade show west i've got maybe i think 11 or 12 knives that i'm bringing out there to salt lake city with me a couple of different showing. pretty pretty cool yeah i'm excited hopefully it'll be uh good with some sales and some some kind of name recognition meeting the people doing things but yeah. um, we, you said something just a moment ago that got me thinking about the uh, the knife you were talking about where you can't hold it because there's no tang. This knife that I'm bringing to Blade West with me is a, co- a collaboration between myself and Ryan... Uh, God, what was his name? Ryan Searles, yeah, with SOC, and then also our buddy Lewis Evans with Walking F Forge. We made this cool kind of joinery, takedown chef's knife-looking thing. And it was the same oh, deal because... Yeah. Is that the, the one blade, with the meteorite? Yeah, no, no, no. It doesn't have meteorite. It's wrought iron, wrought iron, nickel, and ten ninety five in it. But it's got that titanium handle, and right. uh, 
the the tricky thing with that same same experience you had i would imagine was the there's no tang on the blade because it comes off of the handle so yeah you know how the hell do you grind this thing how do you etch it how do you grab it for heat treating and everything but like you said figured it out in the end but um yeah man just getting stuff ready i had a couple of knives i don't know if you guys have experienced this phenomenon or if it's just me but i have a whole lot of knives that are finished with no handles and I finally put some handles on some knives this week. So fortunately, I've got some stuff to take out to blade with me. But uh, there was one knife in particular, this explosion pattern mosaic that I did probably a year and a half ago now. And it's been sitting in my shop, completely finished, etched, ready to go, just with no handle on it. And, really getting uh, a handle on your craft. Oh, yeah. <laughs> 100%. But um, <laughs> yeah, it's just been a week of preparation for me. I'm a full-time college student, so I'm kind of you know, pretty, pretty obligated to that during the weeks and really only get weekends, mornings and evenings to work on knives when I'm not, you know, on break from class or anything like that. And Jeez, your uh, output's great considering that. Thank you. I appreciate that. I do my best. It's, you know, it's tricky. A lot of, a lot of early mornings, late nights, but trying to make it work, not be too broke of a college student, but hmm. uh, I've got this, I've got this fiber laser that's still fairly new to me that I've been playing around with a lot and making some envious of that. And, name cards oh dude it's such a game changer i got the i got the chineseiest chinese fiber laser you could get for two thousand dollars and uh so far it hasn't failed me which i'm pretty surprised by yeah but anyway so i'd say my song recommendation for the week there's this band i love called desmond cheese i don't know if you call them a band maybe a duo they're actually from australia they're from brisbane and uh there's this one song of theirs that i really love i think they're from brisbane it might be somewhere else but anyway they're from australia and they got this one song called poly fizzle drizzle that i really enjoy (laughs) a little bit of a little bit of a maybe like kind of guitar solo-y electronic song all right that's definitely adding to the eclecticism (laughs) (laughs) yeah rock and roll well for the Listeners of ours who are not familiar with your work, do you want to give yourself a bit of a, a rundown of who you are and where you're from? And they probably have seen you and not realized it because you were <laughs> a Fortune Fire champion. It's true. Yeah, I went on the show, did the did the thing, got to appear on national TV and make a fool of myself, which was pretty fun. But, I was going to um, send you a microphone um, inside of a cage made of steel rebar that you had to cut into to get to the microphone. <laughs> that would be a fun challenge for the podcast uh, guests. <laughs> you gotta, you gotta, you gotta earn your stay on the on the podcast. But uh, yeah. yeah, so I'm my name's Jaden Samisky, and I'm 21 years old. Recently, 21 years old, actually. I just turned 21 September 27th. And oh, uh, happy birthday! I thank you very much. I am from Boulder, Colorado in the United States and just dropped my phone. Boulder, Colorado in the United States. I have been making knives for about eight years now and I've been working with metal for close to 11. And uh, I am primarily a artistic knife maker. I do a lot of art knives. I do a lot of kind of experimental sculptural stuff. I learned how to weld at the age of 10. And eventually that turned into a career in welding, or not a career, but a job in welding, several jobs in welding, starting my own business. I used to make a lot of ornamental ironwork and stuff like that. And uh, that slowly transitioned over time into more ornamental blacksmithing and forging. So I was doing a lot of gates, fences, staircase railings, that type of thing. And uh, so I learned traditional blacksmithing. I learned a lot of definite 
kind of artistic forging techniques and stuff like that. And I was able to carry that into my knife making after I stopped doing that, which has kind of defined a lot of the styles that I like to do these days. I do a lot of the refined, you know, really high polished Damascus and all that, but I also love doing the really rough brute to forge stuff uh, with pretty complex forgings, the integral handles and all that. But um, trying to think what else. Yeah, basically, I've just been working with metal pretty much my entire life in one form or another uh, since I was old enough to, and I plan to continue that. So what made you, um, what what was it that sort of, you know, I mean, you're sort of identified now by the knives that you make largely. What was the thing that made you go more away from the um, traditional blacksmithing and, and heed the call of the blade, so to speak? <laughs> That's actually a, a great question, one that I like to tell a lot of people who are interested in becoming a professional artist or a professional maker of some kind or another. And it was burnout, which I'm sure you guys are all too familiar with uh, as, mm-hmm. you know, professional makers. And so basically what I did is I started a welding business at age 16 and I was working for a local restaurant owner named uh, Pasta J. Everyone calls him Pasta J. He owns a couple of Italian restaurants here in Boulder. Super nice guy, really nice restaurants, owns a few of them. And very serendipitously, I had found myself in his employment uh, for a wine rack. And I had never done anything like that, but I had this welding business. I took on the job and it ended up going great, made a ton of money doing it for how old I was at the time. And that was kind of allowed me to buy a lot of tools and equipment that I wouldn't have otherwise been able to get. And so I wanted to continue down that path because it was the first taste I had had of making, you know, pretty decent money as a kid. And, uh, you know, I was doing something that I loved at the time and I was really passionate about it and was like, man, this could be a business. Like I'm going to try and I'm going to try and do this and see where it goes. And so I spent the next three years doing that, making wine racks and, and ornamental stuff like I was telling you guys. And pretty quick, and this is while I was in high school, mind you, so I was also a full-time student at the time. Yeah, right. And pretty quickly, after about a year or two, I started getting so burned out from you know skipping classes to go have calls or Zoom meetings with architects and project designers and stuff like that. And like, it just kind of pulled me out of of getting to experience being a kid, you know, and being the age I was. And so pretty quickly I I got burned out on all this stuff. I began to not enjoy welding as much. I began not to feel the kind of artistic spark quite as much for what I was doing. And it became a job rather than something I enjoyed. And so that kind of pushed me away. I became a little disillusioned with welding and, and all of that. And for a long time, I kind of made a vow to myself to never turn something I love into a job again. And then with knife making, as I started getting better at it, well, and so at this point, when I was doing all the welding, I was making knives, but just casually, just for fun. It was something I enjoyed. It's, you know, I watched a couple of guys on YouTube doing it. I had some Instagram guys that I liked watching. And so it was kind of something that I had started to explore. And as the time went on, people started wanting to buy my stuff. People started asking me to do custom work, you know, that whole kind of downhill slide into, into where we find ourselves now. But um, slowly but surely, I started to realize that maybe I could turn knife making into a job like I had done with welding. But I knew with the experience that I'd had from getting burned out on welding that I had to do it differently. And so I ended up kind of finding a, a different way to do it and thinking about like what made me love it, what drove my passion for knife making and art, and what could I do to avoid burnout. What I settled on was teaching. I found that teaching really brought me a lot of joy and a lot of enjoyment out of knife making because 
it was never the same. It was never predictable, and it was never uh, repetitive. You know, you always get someone. And yeah, I offer seven or eight different types of classes. I'm not teaching right now because I'm in college. Uh, but when I am teaching, I offer seven or eight different types of classes from Damascus making to tool making, hammer making, knife making. I do a railroad spike knife class. It's really popular too. And um, it's fun because you get all these people that have never made a knife before. Some of them had never even really worked with their hands before. And they're just doing something that's so new and so strange to them. And you get to see someone really discover something in themselves for the first time. And that I never got sick of. And it was cool too, because especially with the railroad spike classes, I would hand the same set of problems, making a knife out of a railroad spike to a different set of people every single week. And I would see them solve it in a completely different way. And I took a fairly hands-off approach to teaching where I would kind of let people flounder and make mistakes a little bit and then set them back on track once, you know, it seemed like they were getting close to irredeemable. But, um, yep. <laughs> <laughs> as we all know, but it was really fun because I started learning stuff from my students about knife making. I was learning things to apply to my own knives from people who had never made a knife. And it was just cool to see the different types of minds there are and how they solve that same problem that I had, you know, presented to hundreds of people before. So long story short, teaching is, is where I make the majority of my money and, and kind of what sustains me as a business. And the knife making itself is more so for me. I don't do custom orders. I don't take commissions. I just kind of make what I want. And sometimes people buy it. Sometimes they don't. And then it ends up sitting on my shelf and I bring it to blade show. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Oh, brilliant. So we have a, um, a question that we actually ask all of our guests or try to remember to ask all of our guests. <laughs> the listeners like to hear uh, the story of your anvil. Now, we know most people have multiple oh. anvils, but everybody's got that one anvil, you know, the anvil. Mm-hmm. We want to know the story of it. Where, What type is it? How big is it? Where did it come from? That's an awesome question. I love that. So I have a couple anvils, like you were saying, especially for teaching. You need a few of them. But my first anvil, well, okay, my first, first anvil was a piece of railroad track like most people, but my first real anvil was, and still is, it's still the anvil I use for everything. It's a 150-pound Trenton, and I'm not certain on the date it was manufactured. You can't see the serial number anymore, but I'm pretty sure it's early 1900s. And it's not too pitted. It's got a fairly flat face. The corners are in good condition. There was one crack on the corner that I ground out, but I put like a three-quarter inch radius on it, and it's actually pretty useful for uh, forging now. And it's got a big, nice, skinny horn, which is super useful for knife-making stuff. And the dude I bought it from, I got him from this town about an hour south, no, an hour north of me called Fort Collins. He was a welding repair shop uh, like mechanic. He worked on welding machines, and he had bought this anvil years ago, intending to get into blacksmithing never really happened so he listed it for sale and i found it and uh i got this pretty mint 150 pound trend with like a half inch hard face on it and it was on a custom built stand that was full of sand and oil that the nice. welding shop guy had made yeah and i got the whole assembly 400 pounds in total for two hundred dollars us oh my and god yeah i i got the steal of a lifetime on this thing i'll never forget that and uh, it was it was a fun story, actually. So I found this guy on Facebook Marketplace or whatever it was. And this, I think I was maybe 15 years old. I remember I didn't even have a license. My dad had to drive me there to get it. And uh, so I was like 15 years old. I found this guy. I, I arranged the whole deal. I haggled with him a little bit. And I pull up 
to his shop with my dad and get out of the car and he goes to shake my dad's hand and he says nice to meet you and uh and i was like oh actually i was the one you were talking to like this is my dad I, you know i'm this 15 year old kid looking to buy this anvil from you here's who i am here's what i do and it's it was funny my knife making career for the majority of it has kind of been defined by situations like that of, of being the young guy and you know, some people not taking me too seriously because I'm young and, and all that. But it's always fun when people find out that I have, you know, five, six years more experience than them and they're quadruple my age or whatever it might be. But um, I'm fortunate to have gotten into it really early on. But anyway, so long story short, got the anvil, got it home, super stoked, first real anvil. And about three years later, I took like a ball burr on the end of a Dremel and I I carved out the word Anvilissimo on it because I wanted to give it a name and I thought that was a fun name. It's kind of Italian, you know, it's got some flair to it. And uh -huh. so I carved out the name on the side of it and then I brazed in some brass into the carving and then I, I sanded it all down. So now it's got this big kind of uh, stylized name on the side of it in brass that looks pretty cool. Yeah, interesting. Have you posted a photo of that? I don't think yeah, I've seen that There's before. There's a video... A time lapse actually of me uh doing the the brazing and the engraving on the anvil somewhere on my account on instagram it's maybe a year and a half two digging. years ago yeah it's, yeah it's worth i can i can i can shoot it to you at some point if you want but um, yeah cool took a couple hours but it was fun it was worthwhile yeah well you got to make it yours it's sort of, after a while it sort of becomes part of you uh, oh absolutely sort of is this it sits there still never moves never yep. does anything but at the same time <laughs> you know we wouldn't be able to be where we are without it oh 100 percent. yeah i i don't know what i do without my anvils i'd be lost <laughs> yeah yeah i love so those things you're excited for blade show then um is there anyone in particular that you're looking forward to seeing or you just like to see everyone you know i went to my my first blade show was earlier this year i went to blade show atlanta and oh that was your was, first yeah it was my first one i'd never been before and you're it right. was it was super cool because I got to meet all these people that I've looked up to for years and all these people that I've followed on Instagram for years or watched their YouTube videos or whatever it may be. And uh, it was great. It was a good networking and business event. And it was also just cool to like meet the family, you know, all these people that I interact with day to day on the internet, just putting faces to names and make them really juggle. Get... Yeah. Oh man, I made everybody juggle. I'll tell you <laughs> what, you know, who's the best juggler at that entire thing? There was yeah. okay. There's there was two of them. One of them was uh, Ben. God, what the hell is his last name? Fortune Fire guy. Ben Abbott. Ben Abbott. Ben Abbott was awesome at juggling. The other guy was Zach Camacho. He's a really good juggler. Not but anyway, so good. I went to. He makes uh, he makes really good chef's knives. He's a master of hamones. That dude does some great work. He's worth checking out. But um, anyway. Made everybody juggle. Tons of fun. Jason Knight, not a very good juggler, come to find out. But uh, <laughs> I met all the people at Atlanta. Met a bunch of heroes. You know, met Kyle Royer. Met uh, David Lish. Was really cool to meet. Lynn Ray. Dude, I had the most proud such moment of my... Oh, such a gentleman, that guy. I had the, the proudest moment of my knife-making career was when I went up to Lin Ray's table, picked up one of his crazy X-ray, you know, riveted integral handle knives, mm. was looking at it, blown away, of course, you know, master craftsman. And I was talking to him about it, and I was, you know, kind of telling him my philosophy of making knives and how I like doing the forged integral stuff, and I'm a big fan of his work and all that. 
and I showed him a photo of this knife I had made with this kind of like I, I beam integral handle type thing, big chopper. And, uh, he looked at me, he's like, Oh yeah, I've seen this knife. I know your work. And I was like, no way, man. Lin Ray knows my knife. That's the coolest shit ever. But, um, it was great. Yeah. Terrific experience this year, or I guess it's still the same year, but this time around blade West, I have a table selling stuff. I didn't have a table in Atlanta. Um, so I'm mostly looking to meet collectors and buyers and people who are interested in the higher dollar stuff. Cause that's the type of stuff that I like to make. Mm. Um, and it's, you know, I'm just excited to see all the, the friends and family again too. Like Steve and Laura Schwarzer are, you know, just great friends of mine. Now I, I went out and spent a week with them a couple months ago and, uh, took a class from Steve and Kilroy's Kilroy's workshop down in Colorado Springs about a year ago. And I think I talked to him on the phone couple times a month same with laura like they're just terrific people i feel we like we keep meaning to reach out to steve to come onto the show um and always something comes up after we talk about oh we got to get him on the show and then we get busy and forget <laughs> it's <laughs> That's been how like it goes, a year man. now we've been doing this <laughs> yeah it'll it'll work out eventually but steve is just a killer guy man i have so much respect for him and laura too they're both just terrific people and, and really they really kind-hearted it. Yeah, I, yeah, I love the more, them. I the more I see of them, the more I just convince that they're not real people. They just no, uh, they're not real people at all. Yeah, <laughs> it's, 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 I get that I'm same vibe you. from David and Andrea Lish. Um, they yeah, both also <laughs> seem just like amazingly wholesome people. It's, <laughs> it's incredible. Just... I don't get it. David riding around on that tricycle always gets me. But um, <laughs> <laughs> one of the one of the things I love about Steve is that I feel like that guy has lived maybe five or six different lives. Like he's yeah. he's a master bladesmith, internationally recognized. He's a champion power lifter. He's a champion airboat racer. Like that guy's done it all, man. He's a martial artist. Like, yeah, what a, yeah. It's strange how like how often that happens with a lot of the guys that like get into the high ranks of the ABS. Like yeah. um, Bruce Bruce Barnett, who's a local journeyman smith here, could be a master smith, but he's not going for it. Um, but yeah, like in his previous life, he was a, you know, like drag racer and <laughs> motorcycle racer and stuff. <laughs> wow. Won like world records for stuff. It's like, um, okay. Addicted <laughs> yeah. I think that there's a lot of really high achieving people that end up becoming knife makers because it takes such a high attention to detail and such a commitment to perfection. If you really want to get into the high level the higher stuff. yeah the higher level stuff you really have to be willing to accept the delayed gratification and i think that that kind of attracts people who are already high achieving in other areas of life yeah absolutely i find it uh, almost comical um in an unfortunate way that your experience at blade show is just this really casual laid-back fun thing meanwhile poor <laughs> neils is up in the you know uh, one of the, the the quiet back rooms just having a heart attack and <laughs> <laughs> losing his mind yeah man that was cool it was um, cool to see him get his master rating and all those guys get their journeyman rating and oh everything. he so deserved it it was oh just my God. so overdue for him his to finally get yeah. incredible yeah, he's definitely one of the people I look up to. He's the first person that I've ever spoken to that was like, oh, I'll have Mastersmith next year, and I believed it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, everybody was like, oh, you're not yet? What? <laughs> yeah. His, his work is something else, man. There's no one that does what he does. His work with the fiber laser is incredible. All the engraving yeah. that he does. 
so and i think he's done a lot to popularize it too because like everybody wants one now uh, after yeah. seeing what niels has done with his and i know kyle roy is champing at the bit to get one in his workshop and you've yeah. got one and I, i'm eyeing off one but it's sort of it's sort of the price point is just a little bit high they're not very expensive not cheap but yeah. I mean, Did once you... you get to a point, you can guarantee that you'll make that money back by using. Oh the yeah. So. One and the nice thing is, around me, I have a couple of different knife makers that are pretty local to here, maybe ten or twelve people, and I've just been selling my fiber laser to them. I'll do their touch marks, I'll do any engraving that they want, and I charge them five bucks a mark. You know, I try and keep it reasonable, and it's helped yeah. justify the cost of the laser. But yeah. um, mm. I recently discovered a new fiber laser that got released. Just a couple of months ago now, I posted a link of it on my story a couple of nights ago, but uh, I can send you guys a link if you're interested. It's specifically for putting touch marks on jewelry. It's it's aimed towards jewelers, but it works great for knife makers too. It's 20 mm. watts, same same wattage that I've got. It's a Galvo-controlled fiber laser, like what's kind of the industry standard, for $1,600, brand new, which is still a ton of money, but not bad for a fiber laser. Not, not bad at mm. all. And a, a lot yeah. of people see those and they think, oh, it's only got like a max, maximum etch depth of 0.3 millimeters, but you can just leave oh, it in you... place and run it multiple times and it goes deeper yeah, and deeper. Yeah. You just keep it going. I mean, that's what Niels is doing. I think he's doing pieces that are probably going probably for hours Probably 20 or 30 pieces. Yeah. yeah he, he'll do an eight-hour etch process just for one that's bit of brass. It's crazy. Wild. Yeah. But uh, I know I mean, Andreas – oh, go ahead. Oh, it's just the same process with like a, a 3D printer. You're not going to get something in like five minutes. You've got to wait the hours that it comes with anyway. Yeah, totally. Break into your local NASA compound and can I borrow your <laughs> 200 megawatt laser? Oh, man. <laughs> if- if only there's a there's a there's a steel supply place just a couple hours away from me called Dencol, and they have one of those big like two kilowatt fiber lasers that's meant for cutting steel on an industrial scale. And I'm like, man, yeah. like can I just can I fuck with it just a little bit? You know, like can I come in after hours? They won't let me near that thing. <laughs> <laughs> It's not like Australia where you can just buy somebody a case of beer and get in anywhere, basically. <laughs> oh, man, I wish we had that here. No, everyone's worried about getting sued. Yeah. Although the the um, sort of strut that would happen of you using a two kilowatt laser to like dial it down to 0.01% of its power <laughs> and just etch a t- touch mark. Yeah, <laughs> maybe, maybe a little bit less than what the machine's cut out for, but... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, that's amazing! So we we actually have some emails you can help us answer while cool. you're here, Jaden. Perfect. Um, our first one comes from Blaine, and he says, "Howdy, I'm a smithing curious. I'm in the early <laughs> stages of gathering up the tools and widgets needed to try out a few basic projects. Because of an inherited retinal condition, I have very unusual color perception. I lack the perceptors for red." Uh, receptors for red so i live in a world largely composed of blue with hints of green and a lot of black and white apples look black the u.s flag is black white and blue and i simply can't see red colored laser pointers do you have any suggestions to determine temperatures of hot steel in a propane forge without relying upon color i understand that table salt will melt at forging temp are there any alternatives for lower temperatures would an infrared heat probe work or will it detect overall temp rather than the temp of the workpiece or regularly pulling out the piece to check temp increase the time needed to reach the desired heat thanks for putting on such a great podcast and taking the time to consider my question have a good one blaine it's a good question that is a good question 
you're you're almost right. Salt will melt uh, melt at quenching temperatures, um, the close to the Curie temperature of most carbon steels. Um, not not so much forging temperatures, although I suppose you could forge at those temperatures. But that's that's what you <laughs> that's what people use salt to look for and when to quench. Um, mm. But a, a thermocouple with a digital readout would be the way yeah. to go for you. And basically, if you take the time to let your forge get up to temperature first, which basically when we say that. Um, we, we mean that the refractory in your forge is the same temperature as the inside of your forge, more or less. Um, so if you were to look in there, even with your uh, shifted color perception, the walls and floor of your forge will look all the same color. There'll be no sort of different shades. Um, then you can say that once your work has been in there for a certain amount of time, it will be like if you if you look at it and from your perception, it's the same color as the walls and floor of your forge. It's the same temperature throughout the entirety of the forge, including a workpiece. That means your thermocouple will be accurate to tell you what temperature the piece is. Obviously, with a thicker piece, though, you've got to give it time to let temperature get all the way through to the core of the piece, a bit like cooking a steak. Um, but <laughs> with a little bit of practice, I think that would be very doable. Yeah. Absolutely. Another option, another option with that too, that I learned about, uh, when I was down with Steve, I'm, you know, it sounds like he was saying with the infrared, uh, heat probe is, is one option, but something Steve was showing me when he was down there, he had one of those nicer infrared heat probes that goes up to 2,500 Fahrenheit, whatever that is like 1300 C. Uh, and he would actually shoot the block of steel inside the forge before taking it out. And because it's pinpoint, you can get the temperature of the piece of steel and not the surrounding forge. So it'll tell you if your if your billet is up to temperature, say if your forge welding or what what happened. The only thing is to get the pinpoint on those, they usually use a laser pointer to um, show you where oh, it's aiming. But if he can't yeah, see laser one. pointers, you'll have to get good at um, doing things. But you might see what you have as a disadvantage. But actually, um, Sam and I regularly talk about this the color that your eye would perceive, even if you had perfectly normal vision, um, the temperature that you see is going to be dependent on ambient light anyway and is not yep. a good indicator of what temperature your steel is. So if I was in a perfectly dark room, my steel might be a bright red, but in a, um, you know, if, if I was in full daylight and I pulled that steel out, it would look black. Uh, so it's 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 not good to rely on the visual color of steel anyway, regardless of what your your vision is like. So finding those um, little advantages like thermocouples, like infrared readouts, is is probably a good thing anyway. Yeah, I mean, realistically, you could use your thermocouple to tune your forge um, until it runs at a temperature that you want it to run at, and then you wouldn't have to use it anymore. You could literally just stick the steel in there, and then once the steel is the ambient the temperature shade. as yeah the same shade of grayscale or whatever you see as red um then you know that it's up to temperature and the only time that you'd need to use anything different is if you were doing something like heat treating where you use the salt method or a magnet or um or the thermocouple again yeah you could also write down a list of uh pressures psi's associated or bar or whatever associated with what temperature you'd get inside hmm. and then just remember you know whatever it is three bars equal to heat treating temperature or welding temperature or whatever it might be um one thing that i did just think of um, regarding the lack of being able to see the laser pointer um is if you were to get 
a friend perhaps to set up an infrared thermocouple on a stand that's pointing into the very center of your forge and you know where it's aiming, um, you can actually put your pieces in that spot and know whenever you use the thermo, uh, the infrared thermometer that it's going to be pointing at your work. So um, there's lots of solutions there for you to work with. Yeah, so hopefully that helps, Blaine. Uh, our next email comes from Tony. And he says, hey, fellas, I managed to get my hands on some wrought iron from an old wagon wheel. I've had a play with forging it, keeping it nice and spicy hot while I work it, and it seems to hold together quite well. My question is this. I'd like to have a go at some wrought iron sanmai and was wondering if there was anything special I should watch for or keep in mind when forge welding it to carbon steel. I was thinking 1084 or 1095 since it's what I have on hand. Any tips from you guys on doing that would be great. Tony, that's a good question. Uh, yeah, I mean, like... Sam has realist- a lovely video, actually, where he, he does that. <laughs> I, I, th- I think it's still up on your channel. It wasn't a live, was it? It was a video you did. I did a live stream where I did a, a wrought iron to 1080 um, spine weld, so it was just a single laminate. Mm. Um I can't remember if I've done a wrought iron laminate. I don't think I have at the moment. Because the spine weld is probably the better way to go with it because otherwise you've got to do all the work, and fairly risky work of drawing it out nice and thin um, to be able to layer it up uh, because that's it really. If you want to need to move that billet, you need to move it with keeping the wrought iron temperatures in mind, which might burn the high carbon steel. Yeah, I mean, like... Wrought iron will work at the temperatures at which you'll forge weld and, and forge normal steel. Um, the big one is like just treating it like you would tr- treat any other steel laminate. You got to clean it, got to keep it flat, um, all that kind of stuff. The The big one to remember is that um, if you're doing a wrought iron or mild steel laminate on the outside of a high carbon steel, the high carbon steel is going to be more red hard than the core, uh, than the, the jacket which means that as you forge it, the jacket is going to want to move more than the core is. Mm. Um, which could so always, shearing. Yeah, always give yourself a little bit of allowance on the edges. Um, so forge oversized so that you can grind back in um, to get to your core. Otherwise, you'll end up with just nothing but wrought iron at your edges. Um, <clears throat> and the, actually, one of the main advantages of forge welding wrought iron to like a high carbon steel core is that it's much less likely to delaminate because the high carbon steel doesn't have delaminations and so therefore it holds the wrought iron's integrity a little bit better um but yeah no honestly there's not that much more to it than forge welding mild steel to high carbon it's the same process it's just um you've got to yeah be careful when you're actually prepping the billet that there's not super huge delaminations or slag inclusions before you actually uh layer up the billet yeah. One thing I've noticed with rot too, once you get it welded, is it really benefits from a super long, deep etch. I love that that deep. Yeah, wood, wood grain, grain sort of. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. I yeah. also found that wrought iron actually responds better to um, hydrochloric or muriatic acid than yeah. ferric. Um, the hydro. The hydrochloric acid isn't great for etching something like Damascus, where it doesn't eat steel very well. But what it does eat really well is slag. And yeah. so any slag that's on the surface of the wrought iron, that, that hydrochloric acid just immediately shoots to it. So um, it's, I, that's something actually I learned from uh, Joey Vandersteek. Yeah, there oh, you nice. go. Yeah, I keep a tube but, of sulfuric and a tube of muriatic in my shop as well as the ferric chloride. They all have their uses. Just don't Vandersteek it when you forge welds, otherwise you'll burn <laughs> your high carbon. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, it. 
<laughs> you don't want a sparkler. <laughs> um, so, yeah, good question, Tony. It'd be uh, interested to see how you go with that. Uh, next email comes from Garrett, and he says, Hello, I had a question about liner lock fit-up. What is your opinion on what percentage engagement there should be in between the lock bar and the blade? I saw the knife that you finished recently, Alex. Looks amazing and appeared to be a full lock-up. When looking through the forums and whatnot, I usually see something like 25 to 50% engagement. I use 1 uh, 410 stainless steel for my liners and my blade uh, carbon steel 332nd thick. Looking forward to hearing your thoughts on this. Thank you, as always, for the podcast. Garrett. So, as with most things, my opinions on this are controversial. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, like, it, it helps to preface that you don't use a standard liner lock lineup. Like, you use a very angled lineup compared to a lot of, like, the more conventional. It depends on the knife that I'm doing, to be yeah. honest. Um, and the thing is, you will... Is I hate any any knife making forums and i avoid them like the plague it doesn't mean i don't read them but i don't participate in them because there's so many different people that will tell you straight up absolutist style this is the way you do it they're going to be people that say you have to use 7.5 degree lockup angle some people will say you got to use 10 degree lockup angle some people will radius their lockup um interaction points so with like a you know, two-inch contact wheel, or some will do it with a four-inch contact wheel. Some will do it with a thirty-inch contact wheel and say that that's the way it has to be done. Blah blah blah. Some will say that you need a twenty-five percent engagement. Some will say that you need a hundred percent engagement. And the thing is, you need to do what what works and what you can test to fit. Because like what you set what you set up on a liner lock will differ to what you set up on a um, frame lock, but it's the same mechanism. Um, so what you need to account for is tightness of the lockup, lack of binding, whatever has lack of binding, because if you, you will notice with some liner locks, when the lock engages, a corner will actually bind in there and trying to release it will, it'll require like a force to sort of click it out of the way. Uh, that's not good. It needs to be a smooth release, but you also need to account for wear over time. And mm. so the wear over time, if you've got a really heavy engagement that goes all the way across the knife, even the slightest amount of wear is going to make that just get loose and, and not engage anymore after a very short space of time. Um, so you need to, it, it, it depends on what angle you've got, what shape you've got on the tang of the knife, what um, line of material you're using, what uh, whether it's a frame or a liner lock, um, there's so many different things and you do it on a knife by knife basis and test an experiment really i like to have if i'm doing just a liner lock i like to have the full width of the liner engage with the underside of the tang as best as possible and i like to have the the angles close but not meeting and i'll i'll actually run like a scotch bright wheel over the edges of the liner lock so that it's got a very slightly rounded uh corner uh, and that prevents binding for me very effectively. And I've got uh, my Raptors and Sullys are out in the world doing hard work and they're all still locking up tight as tight as anything. So, um, you know, it, it works for me. But then again, that's I'm just one more person in a sea of people with hmm. absolutist opinions on how it works. So um, <laughs> really people find what works for them and thinks that that's going to be the thing that works in all cases. But unfortunately, there's so much variance in knives, which is what makes knife making so cool that um, you've got to find what works with the setup that you are most likely to repeat 
Um, I deliberately try and do very different setups in my knives because I like playing around testing things because experimentation and figuring things out and learning stuff is where the joy in the craft is for me. So um, I t the yeah. only knives that actually I keep exactly the same setup with is my, my production knives, the Raptors and the Sullys. So, um, yeah. Uh, have, you, have you made any line of locks, Jaden? <laughs> I have never made a folding knife. All oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> I know a guy that can uh, that does online courses. Oh man, I so I've heard. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely might take one of those. I've been wanting to get in the folders forever, but honestly, I'm too scared. Mm. Oh, you shouldn't be. They they're, they're good fun. Um yeah. you got to be careful though, you'll get addicted to them. Yeah, that's what I'm worried about. I've got the surface <laughs> grinder. I've got the surface grinder and a little mini mill though, so I think I have everything I need to begin. Oh man, those mini mills. I love my mini mill. Oh, they're so nice. I don't know how I lived without it. I want the surface used, grinder, honestly. Uh, I only I only have one of the attachments for the Broadbeck. I don't have a true surface grinder, but it does good enough. I can get within you know one to two thousandth variance with it, no problem. Yeah, yep. it's. Um, I, I swear, if my workshop ever catches on fire, the mini mill is the thing I'm saving. <laughs> <laughs> I used to I used to chuck up like a two inch uh, facing cutter in my little mini mill, and I'd clean off Damascus billets on it, going uh -huh. you know. The thinnest cut you could imagine, because <laughs> otherwise it'd stall up. Oh yeah, yeah. I just Two actually got thousand. Yeah, exactly. Just, just got a carbide facing end mill, and nice. um, yeah, you got to do like like point one of a millimeter, like four foul at a time. Yeah. Carbide's but, uh, weird it though because it wants it wants a deep cut, but if you don't have the power for it, you can't. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, do you have the belt drive, or are yours is yours gear driven? No, it's belt drive. It slips like you wouldn't believe. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> Is yours? Um, I've got the belt drive upgrade I haven't put it on yet. Oh, nice. It's one of those things that I need the time. And frankly, I use that thing every week. So I, I don't yeah. want to have it out of commission um, for a while. So I'll wait till I have a holiday. <laughs> As nice. if I'll ever have a holiday. <laughs> um, yeah, but... Anyway, hopefully that answers your Garrett, your question, Garrett. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry it's vague enough, but as most things, it's like learn the why. Learn the why, and that's that's your, the, the answer will present itself. That is um, great advice. Rather than just saying somebody says this, so I'll do that. <laughs> um, and final question comes from Brighton. And Brighton says, hi, guys, I was considering purchasing my first belt grinder and would like to know your opinion as someone who uses one quite a bit. The grinder in question is cheap. I will actually, as an aside, he did email uh, through a link to the grinder. It's one of those Vivor ones that you can oh. get. Um, they're like under a grand. Yeah. Um, and he says, the grinder in question is cheap for a belt grinder, but still quite an investment for someone who does blacksmithing and bladesmithing as just a hobby. Uh, any opinions would be greatly appreciated. And if this grinder doesn't seem up to scratch, I guess I'll build one. But the lazy way out definitely appeals to me a tad more. <laughs> anyway, thanks again. Uh, and keep up the fantastic work on the Forgecast, you bloody legends. Cheers, Brighton. So Cheers, Brighton. I think we've all seen those grinders. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I avoid them like the plague. Yeah. Well, they are less than a grand. Um, in Australian dollars, they're usually about like 950 bucks minus freight. Um so in American, that would be what, like 680, 700 bucks. Yeah, something mm -hmm. like that. Um, they say that they're two by 82 inch, but the length of the tooling arm on them shows me that they would be able to handle a two by 72 with no problem. 
Um, The tracking is the thing that really scares me about them. You can Mm -hmm. see on it that the tracking setup would be just not up to snuff. Uh, It's just not good. That being said, if you have even basic fabrication abilities, you would be able to get it cheap and modify it to have decent tracking. I, I really think that would be the main issue with them because like you can do a lot with a terrible grinder. Um, yeah, it's I mean, Frankie, Frankie, Frankie was kind of one of those. No, Frankie was literally just, I got the frame. Um, yeah. It was like a pre-built frame. It didn't have tooling arms. It didn't have a motor. It didn't have anything. And it was literally just the body. So I built the tracking system, the tooling arm, uh, motor mount, and all that sort of thing. Um, so it was even less than than these Vivor ones. But the the the... The thing that people in homemade grinders don't consider as much, and I've been thinking of doing a YouTube video on this for a long time, is the tracking. Grinders are really Mm. simple devices, but the tracking system, including the arm that the tracking system is mounted to, and that's usually where people fall down, they'll, they'll build a perfectly functional tracking system, but the arm that it's on has play. And the play in that arm under vibration and and torque of, of the belt is enough to cause the belt to drift. And sometimes it will be running and tracking just fine. But if that arm then suddenly just pops to, you know, one millimeter off course, the belt will suddenly start to slip off your platen. And that's that also day. happens under load when you start actually using the grinder because you yeah. creating you're creating a slack in the system which can then change the the overall tension. That's right. And so there are things you can do if you can fabricobble your way to it to a cheap grinder as a base unit uh, to make it decent. And those Vivor um, grinders, I've been looking at them for the last like 18 months. Um, and I think if you were to upgrade the tracking arm and maybe even throw a crowned tracking wheel on them, you'd yeah. be able to make yourself a, a very serviceable grinder. But you have to be, you know, half decent at welding and and drilling and grinding and and such to be able to make the parts needed it's not a complex build but if you have very little or no fabrication skills that might be a big ask um and one other thing that i've noticed with a lot of these uh the cheaper uh grinder pieces they tend to make platens that are like two and a half inches wide instead of two (laughs) inches wide i don't know why but it's basically like, oh, I'm grinding the left-hand plunge. I'm going to track over to the left of my plat, and then I'm going to grind the other one and track over to the right. Um, and there's something to watch for. I don't know if the Vivo grinders have that issue, but a lot of the cheap um, sort of uh, import grinders have that problem. So and that's I when had you go been... at it with an armical grinder and a zip disk. <laughs> that's it. I'd, I'd actually been thinking of reaching out to Vivo to see if they'd send me one and, and so I can do like a full breakdown ah. of whether or whether or not you could get it and then modify it and make it a decent enough grinder. Um, yeah, so cool. maybe, maybe I'll do that because it would be an interesting YouTube video, I think, uh, especially thing- as somebody who makes all of their knives with a dodgy home-built grinder myself. <laughs> One thing to watch out for, too, on some of those cheaper import grinders, I'm not sure which link you're, which model you're looking at, but some of them come with VFD. And yep. I've heard of a lot of issues where it's an unshielded VFD and metal dust gets in it and it quits out on you after a month or so. So yeah, just ask Alex about into. that one. Yeah, <laughs> Sam, Sam likes to give me shit about that. It's only happened twice in three years. <laughs> That's a lot of times, man. Well, when the VFD only costs seventy bucks, it's really oh, okay. not that big of a deal because, yeah, like, it's bad. still. I have still spent less money on VFDs than most people who have bought a properly shielded one from the get go. 
So I don't really mind. I just keep a spare. <laughs> That's right. But I haven't. I actually, I actually upgraded mine to have a little positive pressure system with fans, and cool. I haven't had it blow since. Uh, That's it's been super running smart. now, running now for over a year with no problems. So um, I've still got a spare in case something happens. But until then, I'm, I'm fine. But um, another thing, uh, you'll get a lot of people, and I know Sam is a stickler for this. The Vivor grinders only have a 1.5 kilowatt motor on them. Um, mm. Sam likes to run his grinders fast enough that you could actually power a jet engine off of it. <laughs> um, I only want to make I, it hammers. Oh, I yeah. like to, I like to, uh, yeah, but you know, a lot of, a lot of knife makers say you've got to run your belts as fast as possible and you don't, it's, it's just, it's demonstrably false. Like you can mm. get excellent grinds at very, you know, comparably low speeds. I run mine mm. at about 3000 surface feet per minute maximum. And you've seen the the work that I do, and the the fact is, my belts last forever. I I, mm. I still have piles of belts uh, from my last um, lot that I got from Rob at Weber Abrasives. Um, I, I, I'll probably I put I'll probably put a new belt on my grinder once every probably two months. Mm. I, I still all. spin out. I still spin out watching Niels do his grinding where he's grinding at like a thousand surface feet per minute. Yeah. Yeah. When is I'm it, up to Trizac so grids, slow. I'm usually at about 800 to a thousand surface feet per minute. Yeah. But that he's doing something. it like 20, he's doing it with like a 24 grit. Like he's doing all his rough grinding <laughs> at like 1200 surface feet. Yeah. And I'm like, dude, yeah. <laughs> I don't, I don't have the patience. Yeah. I don't have the patience for that. Well, I'll, I'll grind a full knife to a, like a Trizac finish ready for hand sanding <laughs> in about 22 minutes is my average. Yeah. That's pretty good. Do you forge pretty close or are you going... No, uh, that's from stock removal. Really? Wow. Yeah. yeah. And so you don't need to run belts. At, I, I have a 1.5 kilowatt motor on my, my grinder and run it with a cheap dodgy VFD. And I mean, you've all seen the knives I make and I do it quick because I, I have to do it quick because it's my full-time job. It's my only source of income. Uh, so... You know, it's it's a it's a myth that you need to be running at seven thousand surface feet per minute with a three horse, three kilowatt motor. Uh, oh, yeah. I, I think the motors that these Vivor grinders have, for especially for somebody starting out, is more than powerful enough. Uh, but like Jaden said, the the they're not shielded VFDs at all. You can see it in the photos. Um, also, I've noticed that Vivor has two options. One of them has a VFD, and one doesn't. Running that grinder without a VFD, I think you'd you'd struggle. Um, yeah, I, I would I would get the VFD. Yeah. So, I started on one of those single speed grizzly grinders. It's got the like extra arbor coming mm. out the side with the goofy tower. And oh, yeah. uh, man, I used that thing for probably four and a half five years, and I still use it in my shop with no. I mean, no Jay, VFD. Jay Nielsen still uses his grizzly. So yeah, <laughs> those things are awesome, man. But it, I will say, once I switched to the to the VFD, it made a big difference for the finishing work, the finishing grits for me, running mm. at a real low speed. Yeah. Yeah, and it's good for when you're doing scotch bright finishes and things like that as well. Not like, trying yeah. to throw a knife across the room. Oh, man. <laughs> scotch brights are just blade launches, really. Oh, my God, those things are dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> uh, have you switched? Have you tried using scotch bright wheels? On like a bench no, I, you know who I saw do that though is uh, Matt Stagmer. I always see him doing that with the swords yep. and stuff. Definitely get onto that train because that is, is that a good right? train. That's a good train to be on. Okay, that's good to know. It seems pretty nice. I love the surface conditioning belts, so I, I could see a reason why I would like those the, too. The Scotch Bright wheels and the Scotch Bright belts are not interchangeable. They're they're used for very different 
um, different things. Uh, one does not do what the other one does particularly well, but to have both is like a superpower in your workshop. It's really the one thing you I yourself- wish. Oh. oh, go ahead, Sam. No, the one thing I wish we could get a hold of here in Australia that uh, Kyle Royer actually brought over when he was at uh, Blade Symposium was uh, unitized Scotch Bright wheels. Um, they're like a, a much harder Scotch Bright wheel. Right. Uh, and that's what he uses for like finishing out a lot of his pins and like his clamshells and all that kind of stuff. It's a fantastic little tool, but you can't get it in Australia. It's a pain in the does ass. Does it take off a little more material? Um, yeah, it's, well, it's a, it's a little bit more of a like a, a solid surface, so you're not getting that real washout that you get yeah. from Scotch Brite. Oh, is it like instead of pieces of Scotch Brite, it's like a solid mass of Scotch Brite? Yeah, it's 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 uh, really like solid. And it's, stripping it's, discs or something. Cool. It's like condensed. Yeah. yeah, it's it's like yeah, compressed. That is my um, biggest complaint about yet. about the Scotch Brite belts is the way they wash out plunges and and yeah. you know, yeah. show facets and everything. I yeah. can't stand that. Yeah, I like to uni- use them unitized before moving to a, like Trizact passes. Uh, I'll I'll go up to like two forty grit, then I'll scotch bright everything, and then I clean up all of my facets with my yeah. You come back. Passes. Yeah. I like doing that. I yeah. I really like the surface conditioning belts for a little bit of a rougher finish. Like if I'm going to gun blue it or something, or if I'm making hammers or more of a working finish, they're so nice, indispensable. For, uh, for how like most of my like I use my Scotch Rite belts almost entirely just for my hammer work. So when I'm yeah. doing like my faces on my hammers, um, yeah. because when I'm making knives, I tend to do hand sanded finishes anyway. So taking them to Scotch Rite yeah. just wastes time. Yeah. That's right. And you should hand, fin- <laughs> hand sand your knives because hand sanding, as much as it sucks, it just can't be replaced. It's so good. Yeah. Dude, okay. It's one so of those things are you... that when you're done with it, you're so glad you took the time. Oh, yeah, totally. The, degla- uh, the, the delayed gratification. Always worth it. Mm-hmm. Are you familiar with um, Ouroboros? I think his name is Tim. Yes, you know Ouroboros. Um, yeah, right. yeah. So no, he... Ouroboros Forge. Forge. I think it's Ouroboros yeah. Forge, yeah. He showed me something that i am gonna try and i'll let you boys know how it works out but i think it might change the game he had you know those oscillating multi-tools that they have for cut and trim and stuff drywall and all that he's taking one of those oscillating multi-tools and he's taking an edm stone like what you'd use to hand sand if you're using a stone instead of sandpaper yeah he chops them into little blocks and he super glues different grits of stone onto the oscillating pit of that tool and he claims yeah. that he can get a knife from 36 grit to 30,000 mirror finish in 30 minutes. I have one of those tools, and I <laughs> never use it for anything. I yep. have some medium. Mm-hmm. I'm, ta- I'm testing that today. You should. Mm-hmm. I, I just bought one of those oscillating multi-tools because I've got the stones, and I want to try it out. I too. never use that freaking thing. It's been sitting on my tool shelf, and I'm like, why do people even have this? Well, there you go. Now you got a reason. <laughs> Isn't that crazy, though? I never would have thought of that. I got to try mm. this out. I yeah, let me know how it goes. It. Yeah, I will let you know. Can you imagine I'll, that? I'll report back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I never even thought of that. Yeah, right? Geez, you want I'm to be interested. careful getting into the plungers because you'd um, yeah, knock yeah. that stone clean off. Blow the stone <laughs> apart. I think it's more so for, like, I know Tim does a lot of chef's knives. It might have even been Trey with uh, Third Hill. It was either Trey or Tim. I don't forget. I forget which one. But, yeah. um, I think it's mostly good for like big flats, chef's knives, things like yep. that. Well, it wouldn't, but, uh, wouldn't be Tim then. Does Tim not make mm. chef's knives? Not really. Uh, well, not recently. <laughs> oh, okay. I always get so confused. <laughs> that is that is very interesting though. I'm I'm definitely trying that. Yeah, isn't that crazy? Yeah. Well, 
speaking of crazy projects, um, what's what's your next project after mm-hmm. after Salt Lake's done? You get home. What, what's I don't I don't plan them out, man. They just kind of happen. Uh, yeah. I'm trying to think. So, okay, actually, you know what? You made me think of something earlier when you were talking about that steampunk folder you're working on right now. The way yeah. the thing you've got where you've got the the spine and the blade is kind of hung off the spine with those like separate rivet type things. Are you using yeah, yeah. rivets or are you using some? No, sort it's of... all one piece of brass. Oh no shit. Okay. Well, so I had this idea a while back. I got the drawing somewhere. I don't know where it is, but I really want to make a chef's knife in a similar style where the handle is got like an integral bolster, full tang with an integral bolster. And the spine comes out like what you'd have with a normal knife, except it stops about an inch past the handle in kind of a crescent shape. And then I Mm want to have three little lobes that come down and rivet those onto a knife. So there's like an air gap in between it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that would be really cool. Have the suspended blade. Yeah, yeah, have the suspended blade. The image I have in my head right now is giving me like Dune vibes. Yeah, yeah. exactly. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. No, that's totally what I'm thinking. So yeah. uh, you got to do can, it now. You're, yeah, you're yeah, on, yeah, rec- now you're on record. I'm, I'm putting it out there. I guess it has to happen. But uh, man, I drew that in class in like high school a couple of years ago. I've been waiting on that idea forever. But I think the time has finally come because I'm really loving doing these kind of joinery based knives, you know, a little bit more of the traditional blacksmithing into knife making. Super fun. You know, it would be particularly cool. What if the integral bolster and the flange that comes off and the tang going down were all solid Makimagane? Oh, (laughs) that sounds crazy. I don't know if my Mokume is good enough for that, man. I struggle with that. Talk to Zane Birch, man. Zane's a master at that stuff, dude. I love that. He is. I was was considering doing it out of titanium. I have uh, here in Boulder where I live. Are you familiar with the James Webb Space Telescope that was recently launched? So the yeah. company that made that telescope, Ball Aerospace, their headquarters and main manufacturing plant is in Boulder, and they do a ton of EDM machining of titanium. It's all grade 5, 6AL, 4V, and they recycle it. We have a special, a non-ferrous special metals recycler in Boulder as well. And so they give all of their EDM titanium scrap to this place to recycle, and that place sells me the scrap. So I have a hookup on really cheap titanium. And so All I'm right. thinking about doing it out of sight. I'm making a we'll mental see. note of that. <laughs> <laughs> I'll ship you yeah. some, man. If you want, I don't know. Well, what the weight won't be a problem, will it? Yeah, no, 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 no. Yeah, no. And like, it's, I mean, grade five, me yeah. five is actually not too bad to forge either. You can no, actually it, forge it. It forges easy. nice. Grinding's terrible. The, the main oh, yeah. forging hammer I use in my day to day work is titanium hammer that I made. It's made out of that grade five, it's two and a half pounds. And the reason that I love it is because of the lower density of titanium means I get a higher volume for the same weight. So the Mm. faces of this hammer are like three inches by three inches, but it only weighs two and a half pounds. Terrible, I know, if you're trying to forge (laughs) efficiently, but if you're trying to forge bevels or you're trying to planish or clean things up, it is indispensable. I love that hammer. And And then um, if people are watching you, they're like, oh my God, that guy must be so strong. Yeah. (laughs) But... um, (laughs) What I what I do not love about titanium, although it does forge pretty nice, is terrible to grind. The oxide is incredibly hard, and it just mm-hmm. destroys abrasives. Another it also throws like jet white sparks oh, yeah. that will set fire to everything. Yeah, you yeah. got to definitely check for fires after after grinding some titanium. But uh, I don't know if I don't know if you guys had seen the horror photos a couple of months back. But I spilled some molten titanium on my foot and, and melted it pretty bad. I remember trying that. To, <laughs> trying to laminate. I think I left I a sassy tra- comment. <laughs> you may have. That would make sense. 
I was trying to laminate steel, steel in the middle, steel core, 1095 or whatever. And then I had bought these two sheets of lab grade molybdenum, elemental molybdenum. And I was trying to mm. use that. So yeah, I was, I was trying to laminate this and, um, the, the, so it was steel in the middle, molybdenum on both sides, and then titanium grade five on the outside. Oh, there it is. And, uh, I put it in a can. I had never welded titanium before. I didn't know a thing about doing it. And so I had made stainless Damascus one time before. And so I was like, oh, I'll treat it just like welding stainless, you know, get the air out, put a little WD-40 in there, weld it, <laughs> you know, seal it in a can. It'll be fine. Yeah. And, uh, you know, get it hot as hell. And so I put it in a can and drilled a little vent hole in it, put it in the forge, just got it screaming hot and went to, to forge it under the press. And what ended up happening was I imagine, I'm not certain, I haven't confirmed this, but I think that the titanium and the molybdenum amalgamized inside the can. So it didn't mm. actually melt. But the, the two being in close proximity created a little boundary layer of, a, of an amalgam between the two. And I think that amalgam had a lower melting temp than what I had planned on. And mm -hmm. so the titanium and molybdenum both went molten inside of the can, but I didn't know it because it was in a can. So I went to squeeze it under the press and it all came shooting out of the vent hole, very high pressure, molten. And, uh, you know, as you know, molten titanium burns in air. So it was, yeah. it was this, you know, bright white, like magnesium type fire and it all, ended wake up you on, up. Oh, it woke me up and it all ended up on my boot. It actually burned through the steel toe boot and into my foot. And uh, I have a pretty gnarly scar to show for it now. So be safe out there. Titanium explodes when you get it too hot. <laughs> I've always, I've always said this to people. Like I always see people drilling vent holes in canister Damascus. Yeah. And I'm like, if you're going to drill the vent hole, drill it on the side that you're not on. No, every time I see people drilling a vent hole, it's always on the side that the handle's on. They always drill I don't it know on why the handle I, side. I'm like, like, it seems naturally, you know. <laughs> do, it, do it on the top face, and then you can, <laughs> yeah, then you get you can play that. You know, it's, it's like that game where you shoot an arrow into the air, and you've got to do the air, <laughs> air, air roulette. Yeah, 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 crossbow yeah. roulette. Yeah, yeah, there it is. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, um, no, like. I, it always just struck me as funny that every, everyone's pointing this hole straight at themselves <laughs> when they're forging on it. I uh, feel like a little bit of a chump because honestly, I hadn't even thought you could drill it on the other side. Didn't even cross my mind. <laughs> it's, it's like, no, it only has to be on the handle side. It can, can it's like, be you know, you're getting into knife making. It's like, here's your hammer, here's your anvil, and here's the little card that says, remember to drill the hole on the handle side. <laughs> yep. Every knife maker gets those three items. Yeah, exactly. That was good, man. <laughs> but what I did is I, I took the sock. That, the first thing I did once I got the boot off, I, you know, I, I have a nice med kit in my shop. I cleaned off the wound, put some wrap on it you know, peeled off all the, the dead skin. I knew it was bad because it didn't hurt and it smelled good. Mm. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> so I, I, I cleaned it up as best I could put the wrap on it. And then I immediately took off the sock I was wearing, which now, you know, was missing basically the entire top of the toe section. And I nailed it to my wall right next to my hydraulic press. Mm. <laughs> Just as a reminder. Well, I mean, that's, that's good that you had a, a good med kit. We've done an episode on shop safety a long time ago and it always so pays important. to remind people have a good friggin' um, med kit in your shop because yeah. bad things happen. Be prepared, you fucking maniacs. I, <laughs> <laughs> especially, especially teaching. I've I've really mm. had to focus on safety and you know because I'm letting people that I've never met before into my shop to to make a knife doing something they've never done before. And man, I've had some yeah. some people try and stick their hand into the power hammer while it's on, and people put their finger in the press while they're you know pointing at something and all all sorts of dumb shit, but. Yeah, it's, keeping, it's keeping the old, a tourniquet. 
the med kit, stay prepared. Yeah, it's it's the old George Carlin quote of like, think of the stupidest person you know, and then understand <laughs> that fifty percent of the world's population is stupider than that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I remember I once my my <laughs> oh, no, neighbor my, my neighbor back where I used to live said, "Oh, I'd love to." Um, show my nephew i think he said my your forge and i'm like i'll oh, come by this time and i won't have the forge lit yet you know it's because uh, uh, he's only like three or four years old yeah yeah keep mm-hmm. it safe anyway he walks in and this kid i'm not even like this is not an exaggeration this kid beelined as they approached the garage door beelined over to my six inch post vice put one hand inside the post vice and started cranking the handle. <laughs> I couldn't, like, my brain was in too much of a state of shock at how fucking stupid this kid must be <laughs> to be able to say, no, don't, stop. <laughs> There's, um, mm-hmm. I, was, I was watching a YouTube video on the national parks here in America a couple of days ago, and there was this problem that they've they've faced in the national parks uh since their conception of designing a bear-proof trash can and the reason (laughs) is is because the overlap yeah the overlap between the the dumbest humans and the smartest bears is considerable and so it's it's tough to design a trash can that the bears can't open but the humans can you know so always always uh never underestimate the stupidity of the general public oh yeah (laughs) And like, I mean, we we get taken by like intrusive thoughts all the time. <laughs> oh yeah! Know? Like, so I was standing times. there the other day, like forging hammers, and I had like the the glowing orange billet of hammer stock sitting on my anvil, and I'm like, I should pick that up. <laughs> like, just, it's just, I could, it's, I could touch it. Yeah, it's just, voice. Like, it's like, mm, pretty. And it's, <laughs> before you know, it, your hands just like slowly moving towards it, and then you're like, no, bad. Yeah, yeah, stop. stop. I always get that with my hydraulic press. I always get a little bit of that kind of like male ego of like I could I could stop it. Like I could take, like, take it. My hand is strong enough. It would be yeah, I could take it. You know what it is? It's the it's the the generation of blokes that grew up reading comic books about like yeah. Superman yeah. and Spider Man who are driving down the street with a mattress on the roof with the arm out the window <laughs> holding it up. Hold yeah. my beer. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. But yeah, sometimes we have ideas and we don't foresee the problem. Like titanium, like the melting temperature of titanium is ridiculously high. It's like 3,500 so, Fahrenheit. Yeah, you, you probably wouldn't get it in a forge unless you're really shooting for it. Yeah. So there was no reason for you to concern yourself with the idea of molten titanium shooting out yeah, of anywhere. I was but at one, I even looked. You know, oh, like, ahead. and that's the thing, like, you don't, like, sometimes you just don't know what's going to happen and weird crap happens. Is it hope for the best plan for the worst? Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. Well, and I had even tried to do that. I looked up the numbers before I did it. I was like, all right, I know that this forge welds and I know that welding happens around 22, 2300 Fahrenheit. And I know that titanium melts above 3000 Fahrenheit. Like I should have plenty of buffer room, but I hadn't thought about amalgamation or any of that other weird metallurgical shit. And, uh, you know, my foot paid for it. I mean, Timothy, Timothy Dick did a video like for like trying to forge weld. I think it was zirconium and titanium. Yeah. Or it was, it was some, yeah. it was some like weird space alloys that he was trying yeah. to play with. And one of them went completely fluid. 
yeah, in the, that, in I, think the it, I think it was the titanium for him too. I think he had a similar thing happen. And one thing that I found out about titanium after the fact was that uh, when you're when you're just forging it open die outside of the canister, uh, especially mm. if you're under a big hammer, what will happen? I'm sure you guys have noticed if you've run a big hammer before that your steel heats up a little bit every time you hit it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so if you get your titanium to high enough of a heat, because it is such a reactive metal and there's a lot of oxygen in our atmosphere. If you get it over a certain tipping point, it'll run into thermal equilibrium or uh, thermal runaway. I mean, and it'll just keep it, getting hotter. It'll keep getting hotter, reacting with the oxygen in the air until it eventually just explodes. And yeah. uh, there's nothing you can do to stop it. So it's definitely a consideration to have. That was um, that was always one of the things when when titanium was starting to be forged. Like I'm thinking, like eight nine years ago, back when I first got into bladesmithing, titanium was just starting to be one of those things that people were talking about forging. Yeah. And literally every Blaze Forums post and stuff like that was all like, titanium will explode. Don't do yeah. it. <laughs> um, and I think a lot of that came from a lot of these guys were using charcoal and coal forges to forge yeah. titanium, where you can get up to the melting point of titanium just in the forge. So, oh, yeah. With like, a hand crank blower. We've, oh, we've yeah. come a long way. <laughs> we've come a long way since then. And obviously we've had guys like Alex Steele forge little anvils and stuff out of titanium. Mm-hmm. And, that kind of stuff. He was, so yeah, like, he was definitely a big, big contributor to me wanting to get into titanium, seeing his stuff. And Tim, well, Dick, funnily enough, uh, Tim Dick, yeah, he has a titanium hammer. Actually, <laughs> That's, he, dude, I'll tell you yeah. now, he's the reason I have a titanium. Hammer, I saw that video, <laughs> yeah. and I was like, oh, that's yeah. cool. I want one. <laughs> yeah, I, I admit, like, like I'm like, I don't have a reason to have a titanium hammer, but I kind of want one. <laughs> just oh just for the wank factor. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sam, you got to make one, dude. It's it's so cool to have that. If uh, I ever get my hands power. on a decent chunk of titanium, I will. I'll show you one, man. I got I got enough titanium to go around. <laughs> <laughs> oh, deal. Yeah, we'll, we'll definitely hook that up because being yeah. out of, and I know it'll keep Broden happy too because he's constantly on me about it. You, you got any titanium? He's like, you know, he's like a drug addict. <laughs> you got any more of them, that cocaine? Hey man, you got some of that? Yeah, doing the scratching. <laughs> like, oh, I, I saw you got some titanium. You want to play with some titanium? Like, yeah. yeah, I mean, I've got I've got plate stock titanium. Like I've got some grade cool. five plate, but I don't have any like, actual big chunks. Mm. The big chunks are hard to come by. Yeah, yeah. Luckily, we've got a hookup. Mm. You do now. Don't the- tell anyone that. You didn't, you didn't hear shit. <laughs> <laughs> Me- meanwhile, talking on the world's yeah. number one blacksmithing podcast. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> you guys are cool, right? Yeah, yeah. be cool. <laughs> <laughs> your your inbox on Instagram is just suddenly going oh, to be just, <laughs> just a mass of people. Hey man, I heard titanium. you send titanium across the world. You've got to be titanium cool. distribution ink. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you got to be one of the cool kids before he'll send you before he'll send you titanium yeah that's right <laughs> that's right yeah so i noticed they've started putting out the call for a, a, the next uh season of forged and fire do you have any advice for future competitors i do so i the first time i went on i did not apply they found me and they sent uh-huh. me a, a message just from having a you know fairly active instagram presence and the first thing I noticed when they sent me a message is I thought it was a scam because it came from some lady's personal Instagram account that said, hey, I work for Forge and Fire. We'd like to offer you a chance to appear on the show. And I click on her account because you got, I'm sure anyone on the internet's used to it. You get a lot of scams, you know, a lot mm-hmm. of spam and all that. I click on her profile. She's got like 300 followers, a couple of posts, and they're like of her family. And I'm like, yep. there's no way this is legit. This can't be real. And, <laughs> and 
for some reason, I decided to give her my info and, and then it ended up being real. But uh, if you do end up getting a message like that, it is worth investigating because it might be real. Might be a scam to, you know, stay vigilant, but it might be real. Um, but if you dodgy way to do things. Isn't that fucking whack? Like you'd think that they would have a better way of doing it. And my email is on my Instagram you, account. You hear too. a pan flute and you open the door and there's Doug Marcata standing there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> But um, if you decide to go the application route, sending them an email, I think it's casting at forgedandfire.com is the email that you can send it to. Um, just if you're at all interested in going on the show, send that email, even if you don't think you're good mm. enough, even if you don't think you'll win. Just send the email because they're looking for people. They're starved for people to go on that show because everyone's been on it. It's strange you say that because like, I know of a couple of creators who are like pretty big on the platforms they're on who have sent in like 14 applications and been rejected really? every time. Wow. Yeah. I think yeah, it's, it's, it's luck too. Yeah. Luck I think seems to have some, some effect on it, but um, yeah, send that email, tell them who you are, send them your social media, have photos of your work on your social media, use the forge and fire hashtag. Every post I make, I have the hashtag forge and fire in there. And I think that that, that goes a distance. But um, aside from that, you know, it's not the end of the world if you don't make it on. It's cool if you do go. It's a fun experience. But honestly, I don't think most people with a full-time job are able to go on because it's a big commitment. Mm. It's yeah weeks weeks of your time, you know, is pretty hectic. Now, given I went on in the middle of the COVID pandemic, so there was extra considerations for that. But, you know, canceled flights last minute, uh, all sorts of back and forth between different producers and executives and everything, and no one really knew what the hell was going on. So, uh, standard TV there, production, really. Yeah, right. Yep. There is, there is a cost, you know, it's not all sunshine and rainbows going on there, but it was fun. I would do it again for sure. It was, it was a good time. Um, I mean, yep. I'm speaking from somebody with no experience on the show, but I imagine that it is hotter and brighter than you think it is in that set while everything's going. And you'd probably you know, want to hydrate pretty damn well because you see so hydrate. many people tap out from dehydration. Yeah. It's like, oh, yeah. It'd be, it's, it would uh, be spicy in that room. Dude, if you go to all of the effort to go through all the checks and balances and all the emailing and the back and forth to get on that show and you fly out to Connecticut and you're there and you go home because you got too hot because you didn't drink enough water, that's a bummer. It's your own damn fault. Yeah. <laughs> same, same if with, you walk through uh, a locker room, you're going to see some dick. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, same with... Uh, not matching parameters. I oh man, it just hurts me every time I see someone mm. get, who makes a beautiful knife too. Sometimes it's talented mm. people that get sent home because they forgot that they had to make it a certain length or width or whatever. Like, don't be that dumbass. Draw the dimensions on the ground with chalk right next to your anvil so you don't forget them. Yeah. But um, what was I gonna say? Uh, I don't remember. It was fun. It was a good was, experience. Pe- People keep asking me if I like when I'm going on Forge and Fire. I'm like, you do realize that's for Americans only, right? <laughs> yeah, they did. They did one international episode, and uh, I think that was it, as far as I can yeah. tell. I hope they do more. Yeah. I, I do love seeing the international guys going on stuff like that because you know everyone I mean, deserves a chance to get on. Tasmania is usually forgotten to be added to maps, so <laughs> I don't think they even know that I'm here. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, Australia's fake, didn't you know? We're all just yeah, like, that's paid, right. So, paid actors. Yeah. I'm just still waiting for my freaking for my paycheck. <laughs> Living beyond the ice wall of the flat earth. Yep. Yeah, that's <laughs> it, man. Yeah, We're, we oh, are the guards on the ice wall. Yeah, exactly. I remember what I was going to say regarding the heat of the shop. I went in the middle of January and it was fucking cold. 
I was like, yeah. I was trying to spend as much time near the forge as possible. I had the opposite problem where I was freezing mm. and they forced you to wear a t-shirt and, you know, you weren't allowed to wear a jacket or a hat or anything. And, uh, it was freezing, dude. It was like 40 degrees Fahrenheit in that shop. Whatever that is, it's almost zero C. It was, it was not Close. warm. Yeah. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. No, I mean, I suppose they probably do that for continuity. Like, so you mm-hmm. can't tell where, what period of the year it was filmed yeah. in. Although that still seems stupid because when you go back to your home forges and there's snow on the yeah, ground. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. Or they'll do the coal forge episodes outdoors and there's like, yeah, every, exactly. all the judges are there in like 18 jackets. And <laughs> yeah. yeah. Just like this pile of furs. <laughs> We've got to have continuity. Well, <laughs> screw your continuity. <laughs> Look at yeah, I'm trying to be comfortable, man. I will yeah. say one thing I have heard from people who've gone in the summertime is that it is pretty heinous in there. They don't have good ventilation. They don't have any bay doors or anything. Like mm. it's it's hot, smoky, and loud. And uh, well, you know, one of the things that I thought was the funniest going on there, they make it on the show look like the judges are sat there watching you the whole time. They're not. Mm. For like <laughs> half of it, they were doing something else. I mean, Doug was on his phone, or you know, one of them was missing. Like it was it was pretty funny. <laughs> Humanized well, I mean, it is, it is like three hours just sitting there. <laughs> yeah, I don't blame them. I wouldn't want to sit there and watch someone flounder for three hours. <laughs> I imagine it would get old quick. I mean, I'm I'm sitting here thinking I wouldn't mind. I'd probably do it. But then I thought oh, after yeah. after doing after it twenty times seasons, in a row, yeah. I'd be like, mm. <laughs> I, I understand for sure. But yeah, uh, I mean, like if you wanted to sign me up for a week worth of doing that, I'd be like, yeah, sure. But yeah, guest judges, the, fo- the cool. forge cast as guest judges. Yeah. Do that. <laughs> sign me up. Where's, where's the, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so thanks for coming on the show, Jaden. It's been awesome to have you here. If people for some reason are not following you for some strange reason, where can they track They're dead down? to me. <laughs> give um, up now <laughs> yeah right no so my my main presence is on instagram it is the underscore slacksmith uh blacksmith with a s in the front of it regarding my mm-hmm. slacklining antics way up in the air but uh mm. i have a i have a facebook page that i repost everything to my website is the slacksmith.com and you can find me at blade show west in two days but uh, yeah bring your juggling balls yeah, come juggle. Come prepared to throw things in the air because that's what I'll be doing. But um, juggling it's competitions been real... at a knife show sounds dangerous. Dude, uh, okay, I, I'll tell one more quick story before I go. Do you know you know Kurt Halen, Free Hill Blades? Yes, you know him. Yeah. So awesome knife maker. I love that guy. Huge inspiration yeah. for me. Super nice guy. I got to meet him at Blade Show Atlanta earlier this year, and I gave him. I handed him the juggling balls. So, you know, I was I was going around. I had a hit list of people to get to juggle. He was one of them. Handed him the juggling balls, and I forget who was behind him, but there was someone behind him. He started juggling, shot one way too high in the air, and very nearly toppled backwards onto a table full of knives, knocked over the whole table. It was, it was close. <laughs> there, were, there were some dirty looks thrown around oh, after that. Oh, jeez. But, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, So I felt a little bad about that. So this year I'll try to minimize the, the crossfire. But it's been a real honor coming on here, guys. It's been great talking to you and, and sharing a little bit of my story and hearing some of yours. And, uh, you know, you you guys are both people I look up to, too, and love your work. Yeah, and, sure. uh, Thanks, man. Yeah, so it's cool to cool to get a chat with you guys. I hope it's not the last time. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> we, I mean, yeah. We, we, do have a his, we do have a history of having repeat guests. All right. Even if it's not on the podcast, you know, I'm sure I'll see you around sometime and, oh, yeah. and uh, actually get a see you in person one day. 
There's still yeah, a chance that I might be coming to Blade Show next year, so. Oh, yeah, come you know, on out. That would doing be cool. his journeyman. Yeah. Oh, nice, man. I think I'm going to be testing for journeyman next year as well, so we might uh, we might be brothers in arms there. <laughs> oh, very cool. There's a few people I know that are doing it next year. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> Competition's thick. Well, yeah. I mean, it's not really a competition. Not that you compete yeah. with each other, but yeah. Tell yourself it is so you work a little harder. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Um, Speaking so, of competitions, <laughs> yeah, we have a Forgecast challenge to. Um, it's, it's just a just a challenge, not a competition this time around. But it's just to create a forged socket. It doesn't matter what it's for: a spear, spade, arrowhead, doesn't matter. Just forge a socket, okay. and bonus points if you actually forge weld it shut. Ah, uh, okay. I have. A, I just bought a stake anvil. Actually, that'll be perfect. <laughs> yeah, perfect. Cool. So um, I'll give that. I'll give that a rip at one point. If you're going to give it a go, use the hashtag #ForgeCastChallenge, all one word, and cool. uh, we'll we like to see what you guys come up with. We will have a new competition eventually, but for the moment, it's still just the challenge. We got to test those forging abilities. If you are interested in the competition, I'm going to use my opportunity uh, and my platform yeah, to shameless plug the, the town's <laughs> bow build off. So yeah, my build off is going ahead this year again, as you guys will know. Um, it runs for two months from the 1st of October through to the 30th of November. So if you're interested in joining in that, the details are on my Instagram page and in the YouTube video on the announcement of the parameters. Um, I've already, as I said, at the start of the show, I've already seen some entries coming in. So, uh, definitely get in on it because the prize pool is quite cool this year. I really Ooh, love it, it. And, uh, very big With- thanks to... Bjorn at Nordic Edge and Ryan at Otway Fiddleback for uh, donating some really nice uh, materials and tools for the prizes. Yeah, absolutely. I'll definitely look into that. You got two things. Two cool. things you got to get on to when you get back. To I know. Yeah. The homework. <laughs> <laughs> and if anybody has any black, blacksmithing or bladesmithing questions for the show, send them on through to ask.forgecast at gmail.com or slide into our DMs. We're on both Facebook and Instagram. So. Um, and if you're looking for Sam, where can they find you, Sam? You can find me at Sam Towns Bladesmith on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Patreon, Etsy, Redbubble. Uh, you know, you can find me under the underscore kitchen underscore sink on TikTok if I ever post content, which, you know, hopefully I will one day. Where can they find you, Alex? I go by Valhalla Ironworks, and you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Patreon, uh, Redbubble. I am still on TikTok clinging for dear life. Um, <laughs> Damn right, dude. Yeah. Um, and check the link in my Instagram bio to um, see the courses that I have offered, including my latest company course. Niels. Anyway, thanks again for coming on, Jaden. And um, oh, yeah. we'll see everybody next week for another episode. Till then, yeah. Thanks for time.